Underdog Notebook Podcast, a podcast featuring the stories, trips afield, and legacies that are left following great gun dogs and classy bird dogs. I'd like to thank my sponsor, the Pride Dog Food, for their excellence in performance dog nutrition and Orvis for allowing me the written platform for my outdoor writing. I'd also like to thank the other friends and contributors that make this gun dog community such a great thing. Thanks for listening. This is the next episode of the Gun Dog Notebook, hosted by Darrell Smith. Guys, welcome to another episode of the Gun Dog Notebook. Um, on the line is someone that has been quite influential to me <laughs> as of recent, and um, really provided me with a very, very, very good opportunity, and um, has been a significant influence and representative in the hunting and fishing, hunting not, not hunting and fishing, but hunting and shooting world. Um, Reed Bryant from Orvis. And so, uh, Reed, I want to go ahead and get you started. How are you, man? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to, to be on the podcast with you and be chatting a little bit. Well, I, uh, of course, you know, I had to return the, uh, I had to return the favor and <laughs> I had a long list of, of, uh, you know, things that I, people that I wanted to start off the new year with, and you definitely were at the top of that list. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I appreciate you saying that. That's great. No, I'm excited to, you know, I, you and I had a nice, had a nice, um, you know, a really nice conversation, I think, on our, on our podcast and sort of struck up that conversation. Um, and it's nice to, to be able to, to share some time with you again and, yeah, kind of go wherever, wherever things take us. So I'm excited to be with you. Well, I'm here for it. Well, just getting started, um, you have had a phenomenal run, it looks like, in the past few years as far as publishing, writing. Um, I mean, you, you've been the MVP of... Uh, the- <laughs> But uh, but yeah, and so that was 2008. Got my first piece published in 
Gray's Sporting Journal, I think, in 2009. Mm-hmm. And since then, you know, that feeling of getting something published and being putting something out there in the world was so kind of, well, I, I mean, as you know, it's, yeah. it, there's a, there's a uh, kind of a shot to your ego and, and yeah. whatever. <laughs> it, just feel, it just feels really good. And you kind of like, I, man, I just want to mm-hmm. keep feeling this feeling of getting, getting my work recognized. And uh, so that just, perpetuated itself and it's like a I've been just very lucky you know I had some really wonderful um, introductions within that industry and and through a friend who's who had been doing a lot of photography in that world he introduced me to the folks to Orvis in 2013 mm-hmm. 2013 I guess it started here um, really through through that media kind of platform that was where the relationships all came from a uh, job came up I was ready for a change in terms of my career um, one thing led to another and I was able to come here and start working for Orvis but also keep doing some of the writing stuff I was doing so yeah in the last um, sorry I'm, I feel like I'm talking no much, please do I'm, I'm here for it please do <laughs> all right, all right. Um, in the last like uh, three let's see published my first book in man uh, last Two, two years ago, maybe, mm-hmm. um, that was the Orvis Guide to Upland Hunting. Mm-hmm. Did a, finished a, a book recently um, that was published sort of privately that was a, a not, not really, it was a related to salmon fishing, actually, and the history of a river, and then just finished a piece, a book in conjunction with um, uh, Ronnie Smith of Ronnie Smith Kennels mm-hmm. and uh, his wife Susanna Love and that's more of a kind of a dog training how-to celebration of pointing dogs and that'll be out I think in the I think in the fall or for the fall season so yeah, yeah it's been busy man it's, I've had a lot going on but I've, I just feel super grateful that uh, that I've had the opportunity to kind of wander into this world in a significant way and, and uh, scratch that itch and yeah just just happy to happy to have the opportunities to do it it's really been what it's been all about right well i mean you mentioned uh what it feels like to have that first uh that first writing published you were the one that definitely gave me that feeling and you and phil monahan so i just wanted to publicly <laughs> thank you for that um and yeah. it, it, it really does give me something to look forward to and i think a lot of that you know the the art of storytelling and i'm very much so learning it you know i i feel sometimes a little self-conscious about some of the things that I publish because I'm sending it to you and I'm like, uh, it's got to be good. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I mean, it's so, I, no, I mean, don't, the thing that I always, I, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that because the, the stories always have value, right? Mm-hmm. Like they just, just intrinsically that they're valuable. It's, it, but I do really believe in and struggle with, um, the, the craft of how you tell them, you know, and right. I, I constantly am looking at, at stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I look at my own writing and, mm-hmm. and it grosses me out a lot. And I'm like, yeah, why do I do, you know, why do I make these mistakes over and over? Why do I sound, you know, I know the traps that I fall into. And then I read great writers who I just am totally, totally blown away by mm-hmm. who I, you know, I, I have that moment of like, I can't, I'm never going to be this good. And like, what's the point? You know, you kind of like want to throw your baseball glove on the ground and walk away. And, mm-hmm. um, and so there's, there's that aspect of the craft and getting, you know, comfortable with the craft and getting better at the craft for sure. And that's a process I think we're all on, but the, but I do firmly believe that the story and the desire to tell the story is like, it's kind of un, 
unquestionably valuable, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like mm-hmm. if you're motivated to share a moment or to celebrate a moment or whatever, like then it has value. So, so there's something kind of nice in that. It's like forgiving, you know. It's you can yeah. sort of forgive your. You, you don't have to second guess. I guess the the um, the motivation to want to share the story. Right. Well, and that's. That's definitely crucial. And, and I mean, since we're kind of in that range of conversation, I do want to talk a little bit more about your background. But in terms of storytelling, um, I think, you know, when we're talking about great writers, to me, not just boosting you, I really do take a lot of value in your writing. I've read a, a, a good bit of them and I'm still reading a lot of it. But also authors like uh, my favorite at the moment is Havila Babcock. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, and and. I even try to, I'll take some of Havila Babcock's, you know, words and, and um, linguistics and things like that. And I try to kind of, you know, kind of try to integrate that into my writing. But then it's also the the act of storytelling that you do so well. Um, and I try to put that in, you know, I just feel like nowadays it's very good to, you know, to write about dog training and the how to's and it's, and, and that's a very necessary uh field but to me what's most valuable like you said is the stories like when i leave a hunt i'm already thinking about my next article you know and and so going out there that's the thing that's inspiring me so what are the things just about storytelling and i know we're jumping all over the place but what are the things about storytelling that you feel are most important to have in your own writing and for a new writer like myself, what do you what could you say for somebody that's trying to uh, publish their own writing? Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely that's a really great question. You know, it's funny, and I feel like the the face of writing and creative writing, essay writing, pub- publishing, and as our magazine, you know, all of it's changing so fast, mm-hmm. and uh, and so there's kind of two schools of thought, and I think I get kind of kind of crotchety and like whatever about this a little bit because I feel as though there is and I can go into you know I can go on and on about why things happen but I think that longer form storytelling is becoming less um there's less widespread desire for it Mm -hmm. I think I think in part because we're we're entering an increasingly um the pace of our world and the pace of our ability and opportunity to digest whatever material media is so heightened at this point that mm-hmm. in that longer form evolution of a story, it's taking a different form where people are having a different relationship with it. So, so in terms of what people want from a publishing standpoint right now, I think there is a real opportunity actually to get a lot of that sort of, you know, stuff like I found someone recently about this, like, like, really quick to the point bulleted how-tos really Mm -hmm. quick digestible um like gear reviews opinions about like product and frankly for me that stuff just isn't that interesting like it's cool like i'm not trying to to hate on it because it's cool there's there's some great people doing great stuff and i've done a lot of that stuff and i get it but from a standpoint of like what has lasting value what do i what do i um kind of lay in bed at night and think about it's those images that are created by great storytellers via you know and i'm speaking specifically within the the context of of writing but also 
honest, you know, honestly goodness storytellers or filmmakers or whatever people that can they can they can spin a yarn or, or just you know flesh out and give give life and color to a story. That mm-hmm. stuff is just so much more compelling to me and so much more timeless. And so when I think about that and how to create that myself, because I aspire to do it well, and I and I. I think there have been times when I've done it okay, but I think that there's always, for me, this desire, like I have those pinnacle pieces of other people's writing that I aspire to. Mm-hmm. And I think the key in that for me is is um, knowing, knowing the setting and the context that I appreciate and love, be it, be it um, you know, bird dogs hunting, guns, the outdoors, mm-hmm. New England forest, um, uh, fly fishing, you know, whatever it is on that front, but making it really relatably human and thinking about those really human elements of those experiences that we have. So for me, like, it's so much more interesting to hear about some, there's a, did you ever read a book, um, called East of the Mountains by, uh, blanking on his name, shoot, it's gonna bother me now. (laughs) East of the Mountains? Uh, yeah, it's the guy who wrote Snow Falling on Cedars. He's nice. a Northwest author. Shoot, that's really going to bum me out. Let me see, I'm real look quick. East of the Mountain. East? Um, East of David, is it David uh, Gutterson? Yeah, David Gutterson, exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. So he wrote this book called East of the Mountains. It's all about a guy who's um basically got, uh, got and I'm going to butcher, it's been a long time since I read it, but I think about this book all the time. It, basically, a guy who gets diagnosed with cancer, and mm-hmm. he takes his Britney's out, and he goes chucker hunting, and he's kind of like, I think, as I recall, and again, I'm, I, I apologize if I'm getting the storyline wrong, but in my memory, and sort of my mind's eye, he's kind of debating, like, I, I have terminal cancer, I don't have, you know, I think his wife had passed away, and he's, he's remembering all of these experiences of his life, knowing that his life is ending, mm-hmm. and kind of contemplating, like, do I just like end it all here do I go out on one last hunt with my dogs and you know kill myself or whatever and the the concept there that that for me was so compelling is like here's this guy who contextually is doing this thing that I can totally relate to mm-hmm. like he's seeing his dogs and he's eating a bird and he's walking these hills and he's but he's also thinking deeply human thoughts mm-hmm. and like and and struggling with deeply human dilemmas and like for me that just that's like the best, you know, that's right. the best. I agree. He's, it's like he's relatable, mm-hmm. but he's talking about something that's so much more substantial, that has so much more gravity than just like going out and, you know, for lack of a better term, and I'm not trying to belittle it, but mm-hmm. like going out and like shooting birds, like I right. don't, if it's just going and shooting stuff, like there's not a ton of story there for me, mm-hmm. but when I know that character and I know his or her struggle and I know his or her relationship with the dog and the day and the memories that it creates, whatever, that's like, oh, okay, that that's going to stick in my belly for a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to remember that. So, anyway, the, I guess my point being, I don't know how, I think, I think for me, when I try to tell these stories or write these stories, it comes from a place of really looking at the people, the place, the the experience, maybe the dog, maybe a moment, maybe something somebody said that that triggers something that's a, a much bigger, um, uh, that triggers a much bigger conversation than just like we went out, we walked around, we shot our guns, we killed some stuff, we went home. You know, it's we like there's right. got to be so much more 
to it, and yet without that other aspect of a setting and a context that I am passionate about and love and feel related to or identify with, like, then similarly, I'm kind of... Right. I'm kind of, like, less interested, you know? Right. So, kind of abstract, man. And and you do a really good job at that. And and again, I do want to get into um, a lot more of your history, but... The last thing I wanted to kind of note in in light of that, um, one of my favorite episodes that you uh, released was A Hunter's Place in the World with Tom McGoin, right? That was one of my ultimate favorite Orvis uh, hunting and shooting podcasts Um, because Tom McGoin made a a comment and not to quote him specifically, but he was saying that... um, you know, he's more interested in the, the I think, the lifestyle hunter. And, and so often nowadays, especially with social media and things like that, um, it seems like there's this emphasis to be like a professional hunter or something like that. Like, right. it was something along those lines. But he was basically saying, look, I'm more interested in someone who does this as a lifestyle. And there's more substance to it and the story behind it. Um, right. I really agreed with that. And I think it was necessary for you guys to have that discussion um, because I, I, I have this weird thing that though I operate so much out of social media, um, yeah. I really think it can distort the perception of what we do. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. I struggle with it a lot, you know, and I, I, uh, yeah, boy, it's a, you know, it's a can of worms because I, I, I honestly do struggle with that a lot. In fact, there's a piece that I wrote for Chad Love that's mm-hmm. out in the Quail Forever magazine right now, somewhat, somewhat about that. In mm-hmm. that, there's, um, you know, and you and I had talked in, in sort of preliminary questions about about uh, what the role. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna somewhat bastardize the question, but mm-hmm. but basically, what the role of um, writing or or whatever you know mm-hmm. what how how those other outlets um what role they play in bird hunting and dogs and so on and so forth and i think so much of when i look at when i think of storytelling around bird hunting and it it, it takes it takes this form that's not so linear you know it's it's the artistry that mm-hmm. celebrates the activity so whether it's fine guns whether it's it's you know uh, uh visual arts like you're involved in whether mm-hmm. it's um whether it's uh sculpture whether it's writing whether it's i don't know any of a number of things that that are done and have historically been done to such a high level, like to such a high degree. I mean, you look at some amazing, Tom McGuane for one, being a tremendous, tremendous, like, artist and craftsman of, of writing, mm-hmm. and, and Ernest Hemingway, and, yep. you know, uh, some of the great painters that were doing, you know, Ripley, and mm-hmm. Ogden Pleissner, and like some of these incredible people, and, and what their subject was, like what was worthy of their eye was guns and dogs and days of field and whatever. And like, to me, that sort of is like, yeah, that's, you don't, you don't, this, this stuff is so good. Let's not celebrate it with like some super quick. That's going to be gone in 12 seconds. And at the same time, that's what we have accessible to us and in the end shouldn't it be just kind of fun and shouldn't it be just like should it should it require like all this energy and effort and thought and grinding and whatever to like to make that like should it's just fun like we do this thing because it's fun so i really get stuck um 
I really, I really get stuck, uh, you know, the social media thing and particularly, um, how, how to interface with it in a really, in a way that resonates for me. And maybe that's like my issue because I think that's not, that's not the pervasive issue, but, but I, but, but social media just is, is something I'm still confused by and don't know how to integrate into my experience in a way that like really is resonant. Um, that being said, it, it also is, you know, with my Orvis hat on or with my bird hunting hat on, like I want people to be involved in these activities and I want people to think they're awesome. So if the way they have access or the entry point they find or the way they visually celebrate what they do is, is through Instagram or, or Facebook or whatever, like, who am I? Like, that's awesome. You know, that's what we all want. We all want people to be happy doing these things in the field. So, Oh, it's a, it's a, boy, I could go, it's like a slippery slope for me because I think about it way too much. Well, you and I, you and me both, I mean, I, I do spend quite a lot of time, um, publishing. I, I got called by uh, a, a friend of mine. Um, he was like, yo, you, you, you kind of, actually a couple of friends of mine have said this, you kind of take up a lot of space on social media. And I'm like, oops, <laughs> um, as far as photos and content. And, and I do think it's an entry point, but, um, for me, um, and why I spend so much time reading is because it, I just get more out of the whole narrative and social media doesn't, um, it doesn't really tell the whole story for me. It's, yeah. it's, it's yeah. cool, no, I, but it doesn't tell the whole story. Yeah, and that's the way I kind of, I think I said that, I, I can't remember now, but it's sort of like, like to me it's kind of like the, uh, it's kind of like the, like, like a good candy coating, right. you know, it's like, it's like the outside of one of those like Dove ice cream bars, it's mm-hmm. like really good, like it's good, but then it's like gone, you know, and there's right. not, and then you're kind of on the inside and you're like, what, okay, what, where, what's, what else, I want to go deeper, where do I go, right. and it's, it's kind of like, no, it's gone. Like, that's the whole point. Right. <laughs> like, it, it, you know, it's like, it's gone. And so, um, yeah, I agree with you. And I, I do. And I think, you know, one of the things, too, that happens, and this is probably emblematic somewhat of my my getting older and having been very, very fortunate to have really immersed myself in the world of, of wing shooting and guns and dogs and everything is is I, I worry about it all becoming too, kind of too familiar or too, uh, too easy. And I'm not easy in that, like, it's easy to go do it, but easy in that, like, I'm incredibly, incredibly lucky to have the access that I have and have the opportunities that I have. And, like, I don't, I try to stay hyper aware of my own gratitude for those experiences. Mm -hmm. And yet I never want the opportunities and the experiences to become like expected or commonplace, you know? And so when I, I feel really grateful for, and I think, frankly, I think in a lot of ways, my storytelling, my writing was better when I was like spending a lot of days going out and like, maybe flushing a bird and missing and getting like so devastated, you know, and like, yeah. and, or may, or maybe like hitting one woodcock and coming home and like being so excited to like show it to my wife and my kids and be like, look, this is the best, you know, and, and, and as things have, be- as opportunities have become more available, 
you know, I never want to get to a place where I expect to, to like be able to go to a super cool destination or I expect to, you know, shoot a limit of X, Y, or Z, or I expect to hit the birds. I mean, I do on a level, like I want to be successful, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I, I kind of love at least the idea of like having to grind it out yeah. and like never losing sight of the fact that like, Oh, okay. I just walked 10 miles and didn't see anything and it's okay. Like I, right. that's good. That's, you know, that, that gives me the other side of, that gives me the perspective to appreciate the good days that much more. So yeah, I don't know, I don't know how I got there. But no, I, I'm, I'm the exact same way. Um, and much of my season has been like that <laughs> where I might come back with a bird or, and you know, in, in, in the story I just sent you, I, I, I think in one part of it, I was like, look, we, you know, and it wasn't a bird, it was a squirrel, but I patted my dog on the head and it was like, good day. You know, right, right. It, I, I don't really care about numbers and I don't want, um, in my writing and, and, and I think you do a very good job at it in yours. I don't want that to be distorted. So, just going back, going way back, let's talk about your history as a farmer. That was really interesting to me as I was kind of doing some research. And yeah. how did you even, how did you get where you are now from there? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> it's, it's like one of those circuitous routes that you couldn't retrace if you tried. Right. I, <laughs> I had a really weird, you know, I, had a, um, I, had a really, I grew up outside of Boston in a kind of suburban home kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Um I did not, not in a, my dad had hunted a little bit when he was a kid, but really I was not, it wasn't, there was no hunting culture. Um, I liked being outside. I liked running around in the woods. I always loved to fish. So that was kind of a, kind of a accessible way for me to interface with the outdoors. Um, but yeah, I just liked being outside. And when I was a kid, you know, whatever, fifth grade, sixth grade started mowing lawns. And then there were a couple of people that town I grew up in, um, was fairly, it was kind of like an affluent suburban town. So there were some people that had bigger, sort of bigger properties. And there was a woman, um, up the road who I worked for who had, it wasn't a farm, but she like had, had big gardens and, you know, I was her, her like hired guy and mm-hmm. I would go out and weed her gardens and whatever. So I spent a lot of time just like, you know, digging around in the dirt as like, a, right. like a adolescent sort of summer job style stuff. And, um, and then, uh, you know, if you, I'll tell you the straight story cause it's kind of interesting. I, yeah. um, I went to, how did this all work? So I did that. I went to college, um, straight out of straight out of high school was kind of uh you know I was going to go play sports in college as a, a lacrosse player I was going to small liberal arts college in the northeast yeah. and um and got there and it was just a tough time like I think as many adolescents experience it was just sort of a tough time uh for me kind of emotionally psychologically I was just not ready to be kind of moving away from home and blah 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 so I got to college and I was just flailing like I didn't know what I was doing I didn't know what I wanted to do you know all of a sudden I had all these opportunities that my parents were paying a heap of money for me to learn how to do x y and z and I had no idea what I wanted like no no beginnings of a concept of what I wanted to do or what I was interested in and then um uh so I left kind of kind of flamed out just in terms of not not like bad but just like I don't I don't know what I'm doing here. Right. When did a, a semester, kind of an outdoor education semester, got just super keyed in and, and excited about being outside, came back, worked this summer, 
went back to school to the same school I had started at and I was just really struggling I was like I don't I just don't know I don't know what I'm doing here like I'm, I'm trying I'm trying to identify what it is I'm doing here but I'm just like studying like classics and religion and I don't know why and uh, I remember going to the being really just really sort of struggling and went to the counseling department at the college and I, I met with a woman who, and I have to give her credit I'll, I'll give a shout out to Middlebury College counseling department because nice. uh, <laughs> this woman like sat me down and, and you know I kind of explained the whole deal I was just like I'm just I don't know why what I'm doing and I feel like everyone else knows what they're doing and I don't and I don't understand why and I'm really struggling with it and she she's like well I'll never forget this she said uh, she was like okay well if you could do anything what did she say she's like if you could do anything in the world that would like make your you know the phrase is if you do something that was really going to make your heart sing like what would it be and for some reason and there's varying probably like bits and pieces that that added up to this reason but for some reason i said i'd either be a farmer or i'd be a um a boat a wooden boat builder and she was like and she was like she was like, okay, we don't offer that here, you know, like, that, like, you, and then she's like, so what are, okay, so we don't have that, what do we have here that really makes your heart sing, and I was like, I, nothing, I don't, nothing, <laughs> and she, and I remember her looking at me just so, it was such, like, a wonderful moment of, like, like, honestly, like, educational and mentoring moment, where she, she was like, well, why, why don't you just leave, like, yeah. why stay, like, you're not, and, you know, this woman is probably getting paid well by a private institution to right. make kids who are paying money, you know, stay at the private institution. Right. And I just love that she was like, just go. Like, don't, you're fine. Like, go do something else. Go right. be a farmer. Go be a boat builder. So subsequently, I went home and got a bunch of jobs on farms. And, um, yeah, just just worked on kind of a whole mishmash of different farms kind of outside, sort of sort of outside of Boston, small um kind of small farms, small production, diversified organic veggies, mostly a little bit with animals, and then went to college, started all over again, a really funky little um, kind of alternative college in northeastern Vermont that had a working farm. And I did outdoor, I wound up sort of doing outdoor education, but we, at that school, it was almost like a communal living situation, so we actually raised a lot of our own food. We went to school year-round, and so we had a working farm there, did a lot of sustainable ag, animal husbandry stuff, and then left school, let's see, left school, worked some some sort of manual labor jobs, went back to, again, like scratching that itch, right? I went back Mm -hmm. to boat building, to boat building school, did a year trade school for boat building, so that was the other thing I wanted to like know if I wanted to do. And then, um, wound up just needing at that point I was about to get married and just needed a sort of a job and needed to settle things down and went and found it um wound up at a place called the farm school that was farm-based education and so I I worked we were all doing education but also doing the farming so I worked on that farm for about a dozen years but also did a lot of of working with kids on the farm so it wasn't as though I was just like grinding out long days you know on the tractor it was like some of that but it was a lot of a lot of working with kids kind of around the edges of what needed to be done seasonally so yeah I spent a lot of time um, and and it's funny because I don't like I don't I loved the 
I loved agriculture in that I loved being outside. I loved the connection to the land. I loved a lot of the the tasks of doing very simple physical tasks like well like mm-hmm. that was a big sort of meditation for me for many years was you know if I'm gonna thin this row of corn I'm gonna like take my time and do it well mm-hmm. like I'm not gonna just like bust through it do a bad job and have to do it again in two weeks like right. I'm gonna do it right this time and I loved sharing that with kids but the actual fact of being a farmer like some people were so so a lot of my friends and people I worked with were so driven by a passion for farming. For me, it was like, not that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have any aspiration to like ever, I mean, the stress of being, oh man, I couldn't, I could never, I would never want to, to be a farmer as yeah. a, like my livelihood. It would just, I would never sleep. It would be awful. Right. <laughs> well, I, uh, first and foremost should have met you probably about 10 years ago. <laughs> I because uh, I, I had a similar um, experience with my artwork where I was, you know, I've always been an art, artist since I was in preschool, but um, I ended up going to Albany State University down in South Georgia and loved the experience and, and got through it. And but the thing was, I was running on a track scholarship and doing a bunch of other things that I really didn't too much care for. And I just stopped running track. Now, I, I my junior year I was just over it and I was like I I'm not planning on going to the Olympics I don't too much care about running in circles all day um and I just want to focus on art and so I just my last year of college I really dropped everything I was doing I pledged I'd done a lot of different things um fraternity and just I I I honed in on that um and I had a very similar experience getting into um the bird dog world and upland hunting I mean um to where I had seen a lot of my friends doing it in high school and never got a chance because I was too busy running in circles. <laughs> um, so, and that leads me to my next point in, as far as the point of contact in uh, Upland yeah. Hunting. Your book is going to be that for me. I, I've got um, a new little surprise on the way and I would like for my child to read your book. And, and so what what inspired you to literally make a guide? Like it is a monumental guide. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Um, I was actually reading the, the best part about the fact that, so that, you know, it's a big deal for me to write my first book. And I was saying that I had wanted to do kind of the academic idea of writing a book, like was something I wanted to do for a long time. The process was far different, of course, as it always is than I, what you think it's going to be. But, uh, but um, it's funny because I was looking at the book yesterday and I don't own my own copy of it. Like, I should go buy one. But uh, um, I like gave away all the ones I had. So I, I was looking at it yesterday and I was thinking about that because really where it came from was the fact, um, somewhat similar to what you've alluded to. And I think I, 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 I hope, so when I started up on hunting or hunting period, um, I was very fortunate. Like I didn't, as a kid, I always wanted to, I wasn't in an environment where people hunted. Like I didn't know, I knew one guy, I think I wrote about it in the forward mm-hmm. of the book, I knew one guy and it was like my, my girlfriend in high school, yeah. her, her best friend, um, this girl, Amanda Gersmeyer, her dad hunted. And so he had guns and he had like bits and pieces of animals drying in the basement, you know, he like, and like deer skins. And I was like, this guy is so cool. And yeah. I would go over there and just sort of sniff around what he was doing and watch him clean his guns. And I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I'd always wanted, for whatever reason, I do believe there's some, some degree of just your wire, you know, you pop mm-hmm. out with a certain 
certain wiring, and I just wanted to be a hunter. And I was nervous about the killing part, and I was nervous about the the identity and relationship I would have with myself as a hunter, if that makes some sense. Yeah. The actual process of like like having a gun and going and having being able to touch an animal and like have it in your hands and look at it really closely like all of that was fascinating to me so um so anyway I would hang out with him and I never really got a chance to go like it wasn't really offered but I, I wanted to do it and I wound up at this college in rural Vermont where people hunted and there were teachers there that identified with teaching and mentoring young people who also hunted and so when you kind of said in essence like hey can I tag along they were sort of like yeah like this is awesome this is us teaching someone who's interested about something we're passionate about and yeah so so I was really really lucky in that in that respect so when I wrote the book I sat down and uh, I talked about doing a um, it's funny my friend Kurt Reinhardt who now lives in a He's a he's done a lot of stuff. He's basically a wildlife biologist, and he and I had talked about how what both of us had wished we had was, and not to to sound somewhat sexist, but like a like a country uncle, yeah, we a little like <laughs> that 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 uncle that would like we'd go out to his farm and he'd have us shooting and like skin an animal, you know, like right. we never had that. And so we talked about how do we how do we find that, or how do we how do we give people access to that in a way that doesn't have to be serendipitous that they find it. They can actually strategically go out and say, hey, I want to find this person that can show me how to do these things. And not just show me the nuts and bolts, but listen to me when I say, I'm I'm nervous about killing something. Like, what does that mean about me? Like, mm-hmm. how do I, if I if I shoot something that's still alive, like, what do I do? I don't know what to do. Like, what, it, you know, how do I, if I, if I want to, I don't know, like, learn to shoot a gun, like, how, where do you even go to do that? And we, so we talked a lot about that, and we actually talked, this is before, I mean, it's right when I started with Orbis, we talked about sort of starting a hunting school of sorts that would wow. do, like, short courses. And we talked about doing a book together, and his, um, we kind of had these conversations going and his wife, uh, who's wonderful and a, and a brilliant educator, um, got diagnosed with a very rare and very debilitating, um, uh, cancer. And so he was kind of like, dude, I can't, I, I got to focus on my family right now. I can't do this. And I was sort of like, well, we started this process. Is it okay if I kind of just see what I can do with this book and he's like yeah you know whatever and he'd written several books so he was pretty encouraging Mm -hmm. um and then I sort of sat down and just went through that process and I asked a few people um you know what what's necessary to include what what do people need to know what are the things that I may have not thought of that people need to know but really what I did was in the process of writing that book was I looked back and I I sort of trying to remember all of the questions I had, you know, and all of the moments, sort of the aha moments that I had, not dissimilar to what you do with the gun dog notebook, sort of, Oh, okay. This is, this is something that I didn't even know, um, was a question. And then it became something I had to figure out and I had to ask, or I had someone wonderfully tell me what to, what to do in this situation. Let me make sure that I cover that. So, so it was really a, a, a process of, of, kind of looking at it through the eye of someone who's becoming an upland hunter mm-hmm. and how how I could how I could streamline that process for them um, to whatever degree I could 
and also do it in such a way because as I alluded to earlier like I hate I kind of hate like just really sterile how to mm-hmm. I didn't want it to be that and it's definitely it not be, it's definitely yeah, not <laughs> no, I, you know it's funny like I was talking to, again I was talking to someone about doing an excerpt sort of a um because uh, because I'm really bad at marketing and I don't <laughs> promote it well at all. And it was actually Phil Monahan, who you know from Norvis Blogs, mm-hmm. and he was like, pick an excerpt. And I was like, okay. And so I picked an excerpt, and he's like, this isn't an excerpt. This is like a, a like a piece of an essay you wrote. And I'm like, well, no, that's kind of what it is. And he's like, no, I want like a like a how to do this. Bing, 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 bing. And I was right. like, I didn't really write that book. Like that's not really what it was. Right. So uh, in a sense, it's it's not a great. Um, in a sense, it's not a great sort of quick and dirty resource, mm-hmm. but I hope that it's a, I hope that it's a resource for people that also want to sit down and look at some pretty pictures and read something that, that like sort of, sort of tells an evolution or describes an evolution of finding, um, sort of finding an identity within mm-hmm. up and hunting that, that, um, yeah, that, that, that just you know, feels feels honest and true. That feels right. like you have some degree of mastery. That feels like you have some degree of like translatable information of like, okay, if I if I go hunting with a friend and they have a dog and I've never hunted with a dog before, what do I need to know so that I don't, you know, freak out my friends that my gun's pointing in the wrong direction or yeah. that that you know that I'm is it okay for me to tell the dog what to do or is that a bad idea or, you know, or should I give him like a treat or is that about it? You know, so it's sort of addressing some of those things that maybe are, are somewhat Mm non-typical, but I think that are actually, um, that are actually kind of, kind of pertinent to the, to the education process. That's, that's kind of how it all came together. And, um, it was cool. It was fun. You know, I, I, I look back on it now and, um, one of the things I, that I appreciated then a little bit, but appreciate more now is it's kind of like, it is a how to, but it's sort of, it, it was just sort of like my, my version of mm-hmm. how to do it. And, mm-hmm. um, and fortunately it was backed up by this incredible network that I have behind me of people that could answer questions that I didn't have answers to, you know, people that had been out in the field for thousands of days and people that had owned, you know, tens of dogs over the course of a lifetime or whatever you know so i could i could get stuff answered pretty readily right and like i said i i like the way that the orvis got to upland hunting um i like the way that you delivered it i really do because um i read a lot and i've kind of had a i kind of given myself like a crash course in you know upland hunting and wing shooting and waterfowling because i it's been what three and a half years since I've started this, so I'm really trying to fill in the gaps. And I and I was hell bent on getting that book for that reason, um, because in a lot of ways, when I'm reading it, you you've covered some of the things that, like, if I were teaching someone, um, I probably wouldn't think about certain things un, until the moment of, like you said, like. Uh, I've been out with people and they've tried to handle my dog and it drives me up the wall, you know, but right. I wouldn't have known to say that to them on the truck ride down. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah. So I just really think that, but you also, of course, uh, a lot of what we do is based around the dog. So first of all, can you talk about your dog and, and talk about why do you, why do you think, 
we're so driven to ch- to um, chase birds behind dogs. Like, what do you think that is? Yeah, it's a really good question. I'm actually really one of my sort of recent. Um, I don't want to say like New Year's resolution, but like one of my one of my recent um, motivations has been to be a better dog person. Mm-hmm. Um, I like I have bird dogs now. I've had bird dogs for the last I don't know. 20 years in some way or another maybe but I'm not a great trainer I'm not a I'm not a consistent trainer I don't you know I love my dogs obviously but I'm not I know so many people that do it so much better than I do and one of the things that's again it's this weird catch 22 that I travel a ton in the fall because that's bird season so I hunt with a lot of other people's dogs and then I come home and I you know look at my kids who want me to do whatever with them and I'm kind of like it's hard for me to justify like taking my own dogs and going out and hunting mm-hmm. for a whole day or weekend or whatever so so my dogs get less work than they should they I'm a sort of qualifying all of this by saying that I'm not the dog right today I'm not the dog owner you want to be I have <laughs> been better but I'm not good now yeah. um, with that being said what I love about what I love about bird dogs is they're kind of, um, it's kind of, I mean, this is somewhat of like, maybe I'm, maybe I'm overreaching, but they, they sort of have, uh, I was hunting with someone once, I think there's a guy down in Massachusetts who, I think that's who told me this, and he, I was way over handling my dog, like mm-hmm. way over handling, like go, you know, tweet, tweet, like, mm-hmm. you know, hop, go there, go in here, do this, stop, whoa, go, blah, blah, you know, and, and I remember him just sort of looking at me and being like, you know, he knows way more about this than you ever will. Uh, and you, sort of like, he sounds like my buddy Richard, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, and it was, it was a really good, it was a really good, like, lesson. I'm not saying that I necessarily took the advice immediately and it didn't <laughs> mm-hmm. process, but, but, it, but it was sort of like, oh yeah, these, these critters, you know, in a, in a way that you, they're, it's like being, what's it like? It's like being groomed for something over many, many, many generations. Like if it were not inhumane to, to like have people, you know, breed for certain breeds, mm-hmm. you know, to be like the fastest person ever. Mm-hmm. If you've done that for 500 generations like you're gonna have a pretty fast person by the right. end of the day, you know I mean? like, and, uh, and so it was kind of the same thing that that i think when we look at dogs doing what they do so naturally and so without thinking i think part of it is that we're sort of like oh that's how it works when you're just like like flowing like that's how it works when what this thing you do is mm-hmm. so native mm-hmm. to, to you so I think there's that on like sort of an sort of a poetic kind of from a poetic standpoint but I also think that there's a, an interaction a relationship with a dog that that's just very um when it when it comes together and you two are working together for a common goal it's like whoa that's the coolest thing I can think of because I think many of us, me certainly, when I was a kid, we had dogs and they were ter- they weren't trained at all. Like they would, you know, they would just take off or whatever. They didn't come. They didn't do anything. And so to all of a sudden see the potential for 
myself or a person to interface with an animal in a way that like you share a common goal mm-hmm. and certainly you butt heads and you have your problems and you miscommunicate and you do whatever you do but like to share a common goal and be able to like interface and, and communicate on that level it makes it's like magic right. you know it's like it's like whoa we're, it's like telepathy or something I don't know how so I think there's something just endlessly compelling about that dogs of course are just great Anybody. Buddies, yeah, <laughs> you know, to have around, and uh, and they're kind of they're they're. I mean, I think the other thing that I really admire about dogs for me is that they're just such athletes. Like mm-hmm. our bird dogs are just such incredible canine athletes. And you look at you know even if it's even if it's from a from an aesthetic standpoint, like you look at the musculature on it, like an English pointer, where oh, you can really gosh, see like yeah. every little you know fiber of mm-hmm. them like don't you know, it's, <laughs> yep. it's beautiful it's really <laughs> something to see so I mean I, there's so much about the dog piece that I think feeds different pieces of our of our brain and of our like emotive whatever center like they pull they they they're they're just special and the relationship of doing something with them that we love to do is special and and watching them make it easier for us in some ways you know finding birds and getting us excited Mm -hmm. whatever you know that's so cool I agree and and what what are you working with right now dog wise yes I have a very old very lazy um sort of goofy American Brittany who has recently in the last probably are they in the last like three or four months gone like stone deaf like <laughs> and uh and it's actually kind of weird like it's sort of scary to take him out because he loses track of you yeah. and he can't hear you like whistling or whatever so I, I'm kind of struggling through that um and uh but he's great you know he's been a great family dog and that's mm-hmm. really why he he, he was a he's been a wonderful addition to our family particularly when my kids were really young he was mm-hmm. just very easy and tolerant and you could do anything to him and he was never a great hunter but he was fine you know, he got it done right. and then we have a um a little uh um English Springer that's got some poor he's he's got some bad habits yeah. um that were our fault that was our first flushing dog and he had some health issues early on missed a couple seasons of training hunting and uh he just needs to be dialed in like that's that's what i need to do this next year is really rein him in but uh but it's kind of one of those things and i hate to think of it this way and i i i apologize to anyone listening and to you that i ever have this sentiment but it's like you have those moments with a dog where you're you're struggling through something and then you're like oh the next dog I yeah this thing, you know? <laughs> and it's like and you like look down at them and you're like i hope you didn't hear me say that right like, <laughs> it's like i don't but i do sometimes i'm excited about flushers for mm-hmm. the hunting we do around here and um and they're just mistakes you know i, I was talking to ronnie smith and Susanna love about this that there's that critical point inside of the first let's say year and a half or inside of the first real season that you can get dogs out that if you as much as i don't like to think this and i think i haven't always believed it they reaffirmed or confirmed for me that there's there's a pretty critical window there where if you if you miss some of that education mm-hmm. you, you kind of can't get it back yeah. and um I'm struggling that with that with this dog now, just in terms of how, like his range, his willingness to check in, his hard headedness mm-hmm. was 
allowed to go further than it should have yeah. early on because he was having, you know, again, he was having some health stuff. So, uh, you know, I, I'm excited about working with him more, but I'm also excited about, you know, more flushers yeah, in my life in the future. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think that's a very honest, I appreciate it, and a very realistic um, outlook because, and I, you know, I talk about Ruger all the time, and but you know, Ruger is, is my first lab and, and I've had dogs in the past and stuff and I don't think it's wrong to think that. I mean, hell, I'm excited about this new English pointer I'm getting next month and I can't stop talking about it. Um, and in a lot of ways, sometimes I feel like I've done everything that I'm going to do with Ruger as far as training. Um, he handles well, he does all kinds of things. So I don't think it's a necessarily a problem like being optimistic about the next dog because you know and, and i think part of that comes from you knowing better now yeah, you, you yeah. know and, and looking for you know you go like with this flusher there were so many mistakes that i now know that i made that that were really hard or have been hard and will continue to be hard to like remedy you know right. it's like things that i just did kind of unthinking or just out of laziness or whatever, that now I'm like, oh, that's why he's doing this. Now I don't know how to fix it or mm-hmm. if it's even fixable. And, uh, and I think there is a point, too, where you have those quirks. You know, it's funny. I was talking to Ronnie and Suzanne about this, too, that my old dog is really, my, my uh, elder dog, I should say, is uh, is he has some really annoying, just like little habits. Mm-hmm. He's sort of, he, he like, he just has some little annoying habits. And I was talking to them about fixing some of those habits or how you go about dealing with some of those bad habits. And Ronnie was like, how old is he? And I was like, oh, he's you know, 12 or something like that. He's like, dude, don't. <laughs> like, let him, like, let him do his thing. Yeah. And it's fine. Yeah. You know? And uh, so, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, dogs are, dogs are part of the game. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Big Absolutely. part of the game. Absolutely. And before I go on to the next thing, real quick, I'm very jealous that you know uh, Ronnie and Susanna love. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm a big fan of theirs, but I'm a little jealous. <laughs> yeah, no, they're they're awesome folks, and uh, and really, um, really remarkable in their in their understanding of and their patience learning about dogs and mm-hmm. what they see and what they um, what they see that I don't see and what they. Um, yeah, it's just so many things they do, but they're also just super like stand-up folks. Yeah. You know, they're the kind of people that just just they shoot you straight. They're very honest, very um, sort of polite, and just just uh, just good just good people. Good people. Yeah, I believe it. Well, let's also talk about something. You, um, as the host of your podcast, speak a lot about uh, fine guns, shotguns in particular, and I really enjoy it and. So talk about, you know, some of your knowledge. Like, why do you think the artistry in these guns play such a significant role in what we do? Yeah, um, really good question. I think I think that for me or sort of where I've come to fall on that is that there's a there's a piece a big piece of what we are as up and hunting. I mean, the reality is how many hours in the course of a year are we actually out in the field hunting? Like it's not that many you know it's it we do as much as we can but it's really not that many and so there's this um there's this whole other aspect to the identity of being an upland hunter and to Mm -hmm. identifying with that uh that life or that experience that's really important to us and i think for each of us we have this um 
we have sort of an aesthetic in our minds of what that looks like for us as individuals. And for me, that always meant, you know, a side-by-side shotgun and, and kind of, um, something, something about sort of a classic look Mm -hmm. and a classic feel. It just felt like that's how you honor the game and paint it properly. Like, and this is no, I mean, no, by absolutely mean no disrespect, but like, to, to, to me, like in my head, and this is gonna, I'm, I almost have to say it because it sounds so like elitist. But, <laughs> Good, like, go like, ahead, I'm all like, for it. Like, <laughs> I, like for example, like I own, you know, my waterfowl guns, like a camo synthetic mm-hmm. semi-automatic 12 gauge. And when I carry that thing, which I do occasionally just out of necessity, if I happen to have it and I'm, there happens to be a chance to go up on bird hunting and I happen to carry it like in the grouse woods, it just doesn't feel right. It's right. like, no, this doesn't fit here. Like right. there's something different that needs to, and, and I think a lot of that is just my aesthetic. So when I think about, um, I also think a lot about, and I, I have for a long time, and this was actually something that, that occurred to me maybe as a justification, but more I think as a, um, I, I don't know. It was just, it was a piece of it was that if you're going to go out and do this thing that you think is beautiful and you're going to kill a beautiful bird and you're going to be reverent about that Mm -hmm. and you're going to kind of do the whole experience justice, like carry a pretty gun, you know, like carry that someone cared about making or carry Mm -hmm. something that like has been around for a long time because this whole thing is older than you are, you know, so it's Mm -hmm. almost like, um, it's almost like a, like a, what's the word? Like a, um, like a totem, you know, or like a talisman kind of thing of, of like, no, I need to, I need to, everything I do that surrounds this experience, Mm -hmm. I want to do it in a way that celebrates the experience Mm -hmm. and does it the justice that I feel like it deserves. So that's kind of where it came from for me. And then you get into the actual, um, the actual artistry of it. And for me, the fundamentally that's, that's the idea that you, I'm also fascinated by, I'm not an engineer and I don't have an engineering mind whatsoever, but I'm fascinated by like, by like, machines like like machines that don't have like a power source really you know it's Mm -hmm. like so so whether it's mechanical watches or clocks or or guns or um uh, those are kind of the good examples but where it's like metal and wood Mm -hmm. and spring power and like an explosion and fire and like it's just so cool you know it's so cool and like that that you could that you could have something that's made by hand out of metal, like filed, you know, and, and engraved by hand. And like all that stuff is just so cool to me that, uh, yeah, that's kind of where, that's where that fascination began. Um, you know, they're dangerous. So they're like attractive in that way when you're a kid, like, Ooh, you know, this is sort of scares me, but it's also powerful and more powerful than me. And that's, interesting and uh and then then you just kind of get into the lore of it all mm-hmm. and the 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 characters and the craft and and then it's a slippery slope and then all of a sudden you're telling yourself that you don't need to buy groceries for the next three right. months <laughs> <laughs> whatever so yeah, i i i definitely agree and i have this so when i first started hunting and, and i want to get on to a couple of more uh you know, questions in a second, but just as a sidebar, when I started hunting, I don't know how many guns I bought from pawn shops and sold. And, and I, I, because I would go and I, I, I had, I, I started hunting with, uh, honestly a, a single shot, 
uh, something. I don't even remember what it was. Then I sold that gun because it didn't make sense. And then I ended up getting a a side-by-side Stoker 16-gauge because I was reading all about it. And then the firing pin went out because it was a cheap gun. (laughs) And then I went and got a... I thought I wanted to get it more into duck hunting. So I went and got a semi-automatic 870 camouflage. And that didn't feel right. I was like, ah, this isn't me. To the point where I got to my Beretta now. And now I won't... and, And anybody would probably slap me in the face for this one. I will not hunt with another gun. I don't care what I'm doing. I will go duck hunting with that that old over-under. I will go to the grouse woods. I will go hunt quail. I don't care what it is. Like you said, I feel like I'm doing it right and and paying homage to the culture of it. And, you know, and I I, I don't think I really thought about why until this podcast. Um, But my wife was like, you bought a lot of guns, and I'm like, "Yep," and I sold them all. <laughs> um, um, yeah, yeah, no, I totally, totally hear you. And I sort of went through that same progression or evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I still do. You know, I have moments like, uh, and it gets, it, 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 it gets. I love. You know, it's funny. Like I was thinking about you in this respect that um having. The people that I know that have one gun that they love and they shoot that gun and they shoot it well Mm -hmm. and they just, like, that's what they do for the rest of their life or whatever. And, like, I I really, um, I really appreciate when I see that happen because I, I, part of me, like, wants to be that person. Mm -hmm. And I do have, like, for a very small number of, like, a, a very, a very small sort of, uh, what I call, I guess, number of, like, items or elements. Like, I have, like, a collector's mm-hmm. thing, like, mm-hmm. a sort of mentality. So I want I want more. Like, right. I want to have more. And um, guns is definitely one of those things. So for me, what I wind up doing is there are certain guns that I shoot a, a lot mm-hmm. or, or a fair amount. But, um, but there's a lot of – but I have more guns than I need, and I shoot more different guns than I should to be really good. Yeah. And so – but, but there's also, it goes back to that whole identity thing where, like, I see, and particularly the more I, the, de- the deeper I swim kind of into this whole thing, there is, like, like when I'm hunting, gra- if I go grouse hunting in northern Maine, you know, there's, a, there's like, a certain way I want to look and feel, and there's mm-hmm. a certain thing that, like, makes sense to me there, and there's a certain gun that fits contextually in that space for me as it like aesthetically or visually or whatever and so that might be a slightly different gun than what fits and works and makes sense you know to me when I'm out walking around trying to shoot a sharp tail grouse or you know something like that versus what I might feel like makes sense if I were down shooting quail and unfortunately I don't have the means to you know have a quiver like that yeah <laughs> I wish I did but uh but there it is, so I do still have that sort of longing, even though I have guns that I love and I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I, I certainly have more guns than I need. I still have that moment of like, oh, you know, when I go to the Southeast on Quail, what I really should have is X. Yeah. And like that, you know, so it's, it's funny how like, how deep you can go mm-hmm. into that thought process or into that space of wanting um so i i envy people that don't have that because i think you know there's there's something about i was thinking about this recently about in another 
sort of around another topic, but that whole idea of like having enough is, right. is very compelling to me. Um, and not feeling that sort of like little knot in your stomach that says you need the next thing or want the additional thing, you know? So right. anyway, when it comes to guns, it's, it's tough though. I have a weak spot there. Hey, I'm, I'm right there. I have, uh, and this is my next question, but I have this, um, after reading a lot of, um, the gun section in your book, it drove me to kind of do some more research and, um, project Upland actually did an article, um, on Spanish AYAs. And that was something that, um, was one of the examples of the, uh, Spanish guns that you mentioned. So that really caught my attention. What do you think would be a good way for someone else to kind of get into um, getting their first double gun? Like what, what would you recommend or, or how would you recommend going about it based off of just what's on the market or what's available now? Yeah. <laughs> I know that was a large question. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a tough one. You know, if you, it, it's a tough one for, for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Like and I guess I'll just sort of go. You and know, you can go down the Orvis catalog too. I don't mind because y'all also have oh, a yeah, very no, no, good. No, no. Selection. It's much more like I, what I would say is like it's somewhat, somewhat dangerous water to tread in because the reality is we, I personally, and we Orvis really believe in break action guns, particularly mm-hmm. for upland hunting, from a safety standpoint, from an education standpoint, from a all of the above standpoint, like break action is the way to go. So that basically, unless you're shooting a single shot, which isn't super practical in most cases, right. you know, you're looking at an over under or side by side. And with that in mind, you're basically looking at a higher price gun than yeah. most, you know, you're, you're already into that for a new gun sort of bottom, more or less you're at that $2,000 threshold, which like, don't get me wrong. Like in the world of double guns, that's, that's that's cheap small dollars yeah in the world of money that's a lot of money right <laughs> so like so you know it's hard because what i always want to say is like go go get for your first gun should be a break action double gun and i feel like when i say that and people are like okay can i get one for you know three to five hundred dollars and it's like eh, maybe but that you're you're gonna run into issues. So when I when I was trying to kind of like educate myself, I was fascinated by um. I actually had a lot of different gun books, but the the Bible, if you will, is always um best guns by Michael McIntosh or mm-hmm. shotguns and shooting by Michael McIntosh, which are just good resources. And granted, he talks a lot about very high end guns, but he also is really good at sort of painting a picture of the landscape of 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 high-grade double guns and not even high-grade but just double guns in right. general and also and also specifying like what you what's kind of good what's bad why what's good is good and why what's bad is bad and so when people want to get their first double gun what I often say is you know there's a some great there's some great guns out there that you can buy new that have a warranty that'll go bang forever and if they for some reason don't you can send it back so you know then you're looking at your you like your Brownings, um, some of your Berettas, mm-hmm. uh, some of like we do a lot with Fab Arm, um, is our kind of, it's like a $2,500 gun, which again is a lot of money. Like yeah. I get that, but it's, those are great guns. Um, they're serviceable. They, they are good looking. They feel good. You know, there's, there's something you can carry around and really be proud of in any environment. Mm-hmm. Like you could go to the most elite private 
um, you know, quail plantation southeast and be told like you're like you have a silver pigeon, right? Yep, yep, yep. I mean, you could take that gun literally anywhere in the world, yeah, and be totally proud to have that gun. Oh, I in, definitely was. In, anywhere. Yeah, I yeah, I was it, down yeah. at um at uh the Kevin's uh, game fair shortly after the Orvis uh, Purcell Farms game fair. And yeah. even at Purcell Farms, I used that gun, um, and I didn't feel out of place. And I know that sounds very uh, elitist or classist and, and, and whatever. I, it is what it is. I agree with you. You know, when you talk yeah. about a fab arm, um, I was down there with Chris Edlin. He was shooting um, the, I think there's the new fab arm gun that Orvis has. And, yeah, the D2, yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, phenomenal shooting gun. Um but there was there was just a, a whole essence and energy behind that. And I do think that it's important to own that because, I mean, who really wants to kind of feel like the outcast? And I know that sounds yeah. bad, but who wants to feel yeah. that? Yeah, no, and that's kind of, you know, going back to the books, that's kind of some of what I wanted to help people not have to help people avoid some of those some of those kind of conversations, some of those things. But so what I, going back to guns, you know, first double gun, Basically, you're going to pay slightly less for 12 gauge. So, you know, there's, again, people who look at 12 gauges and sort of poo-poo them as being too much gun, which is really a non... It, it doesn't... It's it's nonsensical in a way because you can shoot a very light load out of a right. 12 gauge, a very heavy load out of 20 gauge or whatever. So it's, it's sort of an apples and oranges comparison. But, uh, um, but I would say that you know, some of the guns that I look at that I just, when I think about it, from a historical standpoint or from an engineering and manufacturer standpoint, are just tremendous guns for the money. Like, truly tremendous. Are the kind of baseline, bottom of the barrel level guns from the old American makers. So what I mean by that would be, you know, your your um, Parker Trojans, your Lefevre Nitro Specials, your H. Fox Sterling Wars, your... Um. Uh, who am I not thinking of? Lefevre. Who made the most of Lefevre? Like, I can't remember. Anyway, mm-hmm. those maker. You know, you figure those are pretty, pretty plain Jane guns. Pretty plain Jane wood, unengraved actions. But you figure those are made in an era when stuff was like made by hand. You know, mm-hmm. the the handwork that went into those guns is amazing. Yeah. So when you look at from a value equity standpoint were those guns being manufactured today in the manner that they were manufactured in the 1920s mm-hmm. you'd be looking at a gun that you couldn't possibly manufacture for I don't know five six thousand dollars and you can see those guns for sale for a thousand bucks so yeah. it's like okay that's a great deal there's heritage there's history that's kind of cool there's that whole aspect versus there are guns um that are more, you know, browning being one sort of more machine made, if you will, um, that are, that are, the tolerances are super tight. They're, you know, they're well-made guns and they go off and they're, they're good. And, and you can get them for a reasonable amount of money. Um, it's just like, 
it's a different thing, you know, it's the same way like looking at a classic car versus a, you know, a new car, it's just, it's two different things. And so it's, it's kind of what, again, it goes back to that identity. It's like, what rings your time? It's like, what, what has that allure? Mm-hmm. Um, what paints you in the way that you want to be painted when you pick it up and, and head out? So, you know, and then you just start looking. You go, the, I would definitely recommend people go to a trusted source that's going to stand behind a product. That's, you know, that's one of those things that, um, uh, you know, with a new gun, you typically have some degree of a warranty, which is great. Um, old mm-hmm. guns, you don't. They're old. They, mm-hmm. they crack. They rust they do all the things they do um but if you go to a reputable salesperson you know a place with a storefront orvis obviously is the place that i know we stand behind our stuff but i would think any of the oh you know uh griffin and how kevin's um robin hollow uh galvan's any of the big name people will have some smattering of two thousand dollar or below guns and um and uh, they're gonna pretty much know what they've got, and they're gonna pretty much stand behind what they've got. So that's kind of where I would I would start is just sort of get a sense of what it is that that looks right and feels right to you, and then just go handle them. And that's the other thing is like if you can pick them up, pick up a gun before you buy it. It's amazing how some guns that on paper you're sure are like exactly what you want. You go pick it up, and it just doesn't do it for you. And yeah. You're like, oh, I don't know, it's not right. It, it doesn't feel right. Well, I um, I mean, I just really appreciate that insight. Um, and so before we leave and, and, and kind of wrap up, because, um, yeah. Lord, I could read, I could talk to you all day. <laughs> and I, I, I just know we don't have that kind of time. And I, all the questions that I had for you, it's maybe another time. But <laughs> um, let's talk about and I do want to give a lot of credit to um your friend Brian Grossenbacher um, for much of the photography in the book. So can you talk about, you know, what was the experience like making that book and and being on the road and traveling and photographing with Brian? Can you just kind of talk about maybe some favorite experiences or something like that? Yeah. um, So Brian, I owe him a huge debt of gratitude. He kind of got me, he really, um, you know, with my writing in particular, he really kind of believed in me and advocated for me. Uh, in a way that he had no obligation to um, from the get-go. He really got me into, he, he opened doors for me in the in the writing space that he had, again, had no obligation to. And, uh, and he was very well-known in the fishing um, world, fly fishing world, and then entered as a photographer into the wing shooting world and really has made a tremendous name for himself there, too. He's, he's an amazing talent, for sure. Um, and he really got me along on some trips. So, like, early on, we met on a trip, a uh, fishing trip, actually, that was, it's, it's a super weird roundabout story, but a buddy of mine was um, working at a, a salmon camp in Western Russia, and I was doing some writing for them, like, marketing stuff, and basically part of my uh, pay, like, part of how I got paid for that was... Um, I got a trip over there, so, and that's a whole crazy story in and of itself, but basically wound up in, in very remote, far northern, far northwestern Russia, basically wow. Lapland, like above Canada, and there was Brian with another guy, and we hit it off, and he's a big, you know, he's a, Brian's a very, um, very talented, very confident, very gregarious uh, guy, and he, you know, I was sort of like, just not, um, I, I was intimidated by him in a lot of ways just because he was such a big personality. Yeah. And uh, he really has just been tremendous in taking me 
under his wing in a way and, and encouraging me. And now, um, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time with him. We've gone to a lot of places and I think about it. It's weird because we're, I'll see him actually next, next week, but, um, you, it kind of, it kind of happened organically. Like opportunities would arise. He'd, he'd include me, you know, he'd be going somewhere to shoot photos and he'd say, Oh, I got a writer that can come. And the more momentum, I got with getting stuff published to more opportunities. I had to kind of leverage the writing piece as a value I could add if I were to go on to a place. And then with Orvis, he's done a lot of shooting for Orvis. We kind of have a relationship there. He's, he's amazing. Um, traveled, he's traveled everywhere. He's been everywhere as a road warrior. He's got a, um, an incredible eye for detail. Uh, never, he won't like, he won't, um, um, uh, like he won't shoot and he won't fish. So he's an incredible really? angler. He, he doesn't really hunt. He shoots a bow a little bit, but, uh, but he like, when we're on these trips, he, he's strictly shooting photos. Like wow. he hasn't, I've never, I shot him some shoot a dove once. <laughs> like, and, uh, but he just has no, he, he, his vehicle, the way he interfaces is shooting photos. So, so yeah, we've been, um, we've been a lot of places. We've been to, uh, Oh man, all over the all over the states. We've been to Alaska. We've been to um, Argentina together. Been to Patagonia. Wow. Uh, been to Russia together. Been to I feel like there's other places. I don't even know. Uh, it's, 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 we've spent a lot of time together, <laughs> and, uh, and he's like one of those guys that's like tireless. Yeah, you know, he can't. He like you can't keep him down. So it, sometimes we had a we had a situation. I'll just tell you the story real quick, but we were in Patagonia, uh, whenever that was, two, three years ago, and I, you know, I'd flown for 24 hours and took another flight and then got a ride and drove to this place and immediately hit the ground running and we were hunting and then got back to the house and, like, drank a ton of wine and stayed up late and had dinner at, like, midnight and went to bed. We were getting up the next morning to hunt at, like, six, and I remember the next morning getting up, getting in the truck, driving out to this very rural kind of the place on this this ranch this estancia down there and getting out of the car and laying on the ground and being like I'm dying like I'm dying mm -hmm. like I swear to you, everyone like I was like I can't do this I can't I'm dying <laughs> like rolling around right. and I remember him like and I just was like dehydrated and <laughs> tired and like spun out from travel and just and I you know I think of myself as being like an educated traveler, but I just, it was way overload and I was just, I'm sort of fragile. That way. And, um, I remember him coming over to me and like looking down at me kind of disgustedly. And he's like, you are in Patagonia. You will not have this opportunity. <laughs> Get up get your gun and we're like we're walking now and I remember being like I can't and he's like you will <laughs> like, so he's kind of that guy like he he, he keeps it all moving hey I'm, I'm here for it man look I, I'm trying to be the Reed Brian Brian uh, <laughs> Grossenbacher friend cause I like that <laughs> he's uh he's pretty funny he's a he's a real character and um yeah just uh he's been tremendously loyal and helpful and um uh yeah um wow. he's just a he's a neat guy i mean that that is a blessing man to be able to travel with people and you can tell those stories um and but that's what you know that's what this whole thing is all about um but you know reed you've 
as as we conclude, you know, you've offered me so many different opportunities and literally have kept me motivated um, to continue writing and both for Orvis and Project Upland. Those are the two sources. Um, so I know where to find your work and I'm always reading it and things like that. But where can listeners find your work or anything else about you? Talk about the podcast. What? Give them something to leave yeah. with. Yeah, so, no, great, I appreciate it, because, again, like, I'm a pitiful self-promoter. <laughs> well, I'm going to do it um, for you, dang it. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Um, so the big one, you know, the one that, the the book that we referenced is the Orvis Guide to Upland Hunting, and Orvis sells that, but it's also on, like, Amazon and all those outlets. Um, and that's kind of a, I, you know, as, I, as we discussed, it's a little less of a how-to, but it's sort of a how-to. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of my creative writing is on uh, rebryant.com, so just www.reidbryant.com. And that's, I try to keep that, it's pretty out of date right now, but I try to keep it kind of kind of up to date with the magazine articles, essays, whatever. And then I'm pretty regular, I'm on the, uh, I guess I'm a contributing Contributing editors shooting sportsmen, so I try to get stuff in there with some regularity. Copyright has been really great. I get a lot of stuff in there, so um, you know the, you can definitely look on those on those uh, just on the ma- newsstand for those magazines and mm-hmm. see what's what. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I try, you know, my again ego driven, but I try to. I, I feel good when I can go to like the local Barnes and Noble and mm-hmm. I have something on the rack. So it's usually going to be in either Cover Your Eyes, mm-hmm. Sports and Grace, Sporting Journal, American Angler, um, or any of a number of like uh, smaller, you know, so like um, potentially Gun Dog or Pointing Dog Journal. Or I don't do a ton for them, but um, uh, some of the fishing magazines. Yeah, yeah, I don't know, boy. Now and. Those are that's really kind of where I'm spending a lot of my time. We'll have this Ronnie Smith book out this I think it's this fall, and then um, I do some writing here and there for Orvis, but mm-hmm. it's it's kind of like one-off stuff, and it just tends to disappear into the bowels of the internet. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, the podcast is the Orvis Hunting and Shooting podcast, and I host that, and I try to stay on top of that and just get some stuff out there and. Uh, I've been doing a little bit of reading of some of my work on that. Just, you know, the thing, and I'll say this to, to kind of wrap up because it is an interesting an interesting idea different from, um, you know, where I think I start. I mean, my mind is changing a little bit about some of this is that when we, you know, when I write and I always aspire to write for magazines and I always aspire to see my name in print and aspire to go to the newsstand and see something, you know, stand there and like open it up and wait for someone to be like, oh, who wrote that? Right. <laughs> you know, like, um, but, uh, but the reality is that magazine, um, print magazines, you know, you write an article or you write a story or you write whatever. And once that magazine is out of, out of circulation, like that issue, mm-hmm. they're kind of gone. It's like, unless someone's, there's no like archive really of all that stuff and magazines come and go and whatever. So it's really been, um, it's really been interesting for me to be motivated to try to get some of this stuff on the web or even read, read aloud just so it, it has a little more, um, longevity and, and that I know I can find it or I know like if I get run over by a bus tomorrow my kids can be like oh this was his voice uh-huh. you know reading this story that he wrote like 
and again, I know that's like selfishly motivated. I know that that's not like art for art's sake, but for me, there is something comforting in knowing that, um, that some of that work that I, that I grappled with or worked hard on or got, you know, got through that it sort of lives on. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's sort of my, my justification for some of the, the web stuff, but I don't have a great format for, for kind of housing it or compiling it. And I just, you know, I periodically sit down and just make myself update the, the website with the content, but it's, it's pretty, it's pretty lame when you look at it, you'll be like, oh, <laughs> no, look. An archive there, so. well, I, I'm here for it and I'm all about it because, um, <clears throat> You sent me the catalog and and with a picture of me in it, and I was like, "Oh shoot!" <laughs> right, right, so yeah. I'm I'm all about it, man. Um, and I think you should pr- promote your writing. So I'm definitely going to um, put the links to your uh, content and the Orbis Hunting and Shooting podcast. All of those links, I want to put those in the uh, show notes for this episode. Um, cool. So listen, listeners can get to it. Links to the. Um, Orvis Hunt, the guide to hunting and uh, upland hunting. And I, I just want to load everybody with it because even on your website, you say it's outdated, but there is a plethora of content on there. There's a yeah, lot yeah, of it. It's, it's enough to, to, to keep you busy. So, oh yeah, there's definitely a lot of stuff to read. And there's, I, you know, it's, I try to keep it in a format that's pretty easy to read, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, no, I appreciate that. And people can also always, of course, um, I think there's like a contact me thing through the, uh, through the website, but, um, but also just, uh, Bryant, B-R-Y-A-N-T-R-E at Orvis.com is my work email. And I share that on the podcast as well for people who have ideas or want to talk about whatever, but I try to be, you know, one of the greatest things that, that I, um, uh, like the first time I got a note, like a letter, um, or an email from someone who had read something I wrote in one of the magazines that, you know, just whatever, just a comment. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I really, uh, I really appreciate that. I really appreciate that con- contacts and people saying like, Hey, I read this and it, I liked it like, or whatever. So I really try to be available and try to try to respond when people share their thoughts or their, their opinions or their, corrections or whatever just because for me um the effort it takes for someone to like go out of their way to actually write a note mm-hmm. and send it in or send it to me or whatever like that to me is meaningful so i you know i do i do enjoy that contact with people so yeah people can certainly feel free to contact me right. via via email okay okay well i appreciate it reed and i mean i can't thank you i, th- I think i do 50 million times but <laughs> I can't thank you enough. No, it's it's really my pleasure, and I, you know, I, I really, I appreciate you saying that I've made opportunities available for you. I think, um, I think I haven't. I think you've you've earned (laughs) your own your own way for sure. But, uh, but um, you know, in the end, I, I, you know, just to to revisit that idea that um, you know, our stories that we have to tell are are all worth telling, and it's just Mm -hmm. finding a finding a space to tell them is, is, is pretty neat. And so that can take a lot of forms and that can, can have a lot of shapes and, and looks to it. But, um, but I think valuing those stories and sharing them is, is, uh, is, is really a gift. So yeah, I appreciate the work they're doing. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, I've actually got another article to send you. Anywho. <laughs> there we go. Right on. Um, cool. Well, thank you again. 
All right. Well, guys, that is another episode of uh, the Gundog Notebook. And it's a special one. Is Reed Bryant, guys. It is the Reed Bryant from all the cool magazines. <laughs> so if you want to find him, check the show notes. And um, check out the Orbis uh, Hunting and Shooting Podcast for him. He's a host. All right, guys. Stay tuned for another episode. We'll have one up for you next week. And uh, keep your eyes peeled for um, some more articles on the Orbis blog. All right, guys. Thank you all so much.